Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Church, so good to be with you tonight uh, as we start a new study. Uh, as we begin a new book here at Calvary Chapel South Bay, I want to let you know uh, we're in the process of drafting plans to come back together. We're not sure exactly uh, when that's going to be. We're kind of getting the leading that uh, may very well be by the end of the month uh, that the governor gives the, the okay for us to meet in some way, shape, or form. So we're working along uh, with those plans that uh, we would hopefully be able to implement very, very soon. In the meantime, we don't want to forsake what we always do, which is studying God's Word here at Calvary Chapel, South Bay. And so tonight, the the incredible book, one of the minor prophets, the book of Hosea. Uh, And I would encourage you that if you were not with us uh, on Thursday night, either online or having already watched uh, that service, it was our National Day of Prayer service, and I did a Uh, 30-minute introduction as to why we are doing what we're doing here in this church. And again, remind you, Calvary Chapel is not monolithic. We do not have a centralized form of governance. Uh, We are all individual churches, and we here in this church believe that God has very clearly spoken to us about uh, what we should do in following the government's uh, dictates to us thus far. And so if you would go there and share that link, uh, you can go to ccsouthbay.org forward slash media forward slash live stream. Uh, either one of those two, you'll get to our live stream page or to our media library. And, and I did a 30-minute study really on exactly why we are handling this the way we are handling it. And so if you'd open your Bibles to the book of Hosea, it's very near the end of the Old Testament. And we come to this incredible a story that is both shocking and at the same time so filled with the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, his tenderness and loving care, and at the same time, his justice and judgment. And I want to give you a little historical overview because it's important to place these uh, in their proper context. And though we call these books the minor prophets, Uh, They are in no way, shape, or form any less important uh, than the larger or the major prophets like Isaiah or perhaps Jeremiah. They're just simply smaller books. They address uh, a much smaller portion of the history of the children of Israel and in the same way, the prophetic foregleam that they would present going forward into uh, what we would call the last days. And so as you're there in Hosea chapter 1, we're going to take a little bit of a time uh, here of just an introduction, uh, it's important to understand the time frame and also the area that Hosea is ministering in. At this time, during Israel's history, approximately 800 to 700 uh, BC or BCE, whichever you prefer, but before the Lord comes and uh, before the common era, if that's the way you like to address it, uh, there there's a 400-year difference between the book of Nehemiah and the book of Hosea, to put that into perspective for you. And during that time, the children of Israel divided into two kingdoms. There was a southern kingdom, 
with its capital, Jerusalem, called Judah loosely, um, but the southern kingdom is really one tribe plus the Levites. And so in the south, you have the kingdom of Judah. In the north, you have the rest of the children of Israel. And the primary tribe there is Ephraim, so it's often referred to as Ephraim or the northern kingdom. Hosea is going to prophesy over both, both the north and the south, but his viewpoint is going to be that of the northern kingdom. Uh, He is going to be located uh, there in the Jezreel Valley along the plain of Megiddo or the plain of Jezreel or Eskadralian, this this long valley that runs from modern-day Haifa on the coast of the Mediterranean and really extends uh, very close to the northern outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. And so it is a very, very, very important place in both the ancient history of Israel, and it will become an even more important place in the very last days, as this is also the location of the Battle of Armageddon. And so these mountains that surround it on the eastern side, before you would descend into the Jordan River Valley, there in essence is this valley, a very long one, 103 miles long, uh, that is now occupied by tons of farmlands known as Jezreel, Mount Tabor, Mount Gerizim, and very specifically the ancient city of Megiddo or Megiddo, whichever way you prefer to say it, uh, there on the edge, the western edge of the Jezreel Valley, occupying a very specific strategic place in the ancient history of Israel. It was at the crossroads of the east-west trade routes that ran from the Mediterranean and also the north-south road that would take you up to modern-day Haifa, would skirt the edge of Mount Carmel and would travel all along that. And it was guarded by this city, uh, which by some accounts is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the ancient world. That's no longer inhabited, but some 3,500 years of civilization have been found in the various levels of the the city that is now excavated and known as Megiddo. Uh, There on the western edge, on the eastern edge, is Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, Mount Tabor, these places that are familiar to you uh, in your Bible. But there on that crossroads, because it is at the pass that goes over Mount Carmel and at the crossroads of the north-south trade route that would be in the Jezreel Valley, Uh, This was the place where the kings were located. And so we're going to see these kings uh, that ruled during the time of Hosea. They'll be mentioned by name. This was the seat of their government. This is where they ruled from. And in fact, kings that you're very familiar with, uh, which we've already studied as we began our study in the book of Isaiah, like King Ahaz. Well, King Ahaz actually built Uh, this incredible water tunnel to bring water into the city so that during the siege, you could have water. Very important during that time, same reason that Hezekiah in the south uh, dug his tremendous tunnel to bring water from the springs of Gihon uh, into the city so that if they were ever besieged, they always had fresh water. Ahaz does that in the north. Uh, Names familiar to you like King Jeroboam, Um, whom we will see extensively in the book of Kings. Uh, This particular site uh, at 
Megiddo has been excavated, and there's this giant grain silo. It's nearly 30 feet deep. You look down into it, you wonder, why would anyone build that there? Well, it was a communal grain silo. It was where people uh, gathered together all their crops. There's actually a set of stairs that winds down near to the bottom. And so grain found in it, and this area is extremely well excavated. And so they have found evidence of the kings that you have listed in your Bible. So we know that the kings that are listed in the book of Hosea, the kings that are found in the listing of First and Second Kings, and the history that we find also First and Second Samuel, uh, and Chronicles as well, uh, line up with the archaeological evidence of that area. The central Jezreel Valley uh, is the plain of Escadralian or the Valley of Armageddon. So when you think about it in a future sense, this area that Hosea prophesies in, this place that had been overrun uh, with a nation that had turned its back on the Lord. And this is where it kind of touches our lives in that sense. You know, I've been asked over the last several weeks, especially, but really all throughout this pandemic, uh, is God judging America? And is that, did he create this, this pandemic? In other words, is the basic question. And while God cannot be tempted by, nor does he create evil himself, he does allow things to come into our lives that he then uses ultimately for his purposes and very ultimately for the good of those who love him. And so could God be allowing things like what we're facing to get our attention, much as he will allow some very terrible things to happen to the children of Israel during their time of history, especially during the time of Hosea? The answer to that is almost assuredly yes. In other words, God may well be allowing these things to happen in that sense. And so as we begin this book tonight, as we begin an introduction, if you will, we're going to see a a piece of history that is one of the more well-documented pieces of history, both in archaeology and in your Bible. And so as time passes... Uh, we had Nehemiah 400 years earlier, or 400 years, will come 400 years later. And, and during that time, there's the rise of multiple kings and kingdoms. And so we have interjected into that time the book of Esther and how anti-Semitism had risen and this plot with Haman is foiled and those types of things. But Artaxerxes would come along with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Ezra uh, from Babylon. King Zerubbabel rises up. And he launches this campaign of reform, and finally the children of Israel turn back to the Lord. And then you have Nehemiah placed in a Persian court, and King Artaxerxes makes a decree that ultimately Daniel speaks to us about in Daniel chapter 9 that would announce the time period of the coming of the Messiah. And so all of those things will come later. And finally, Malachi, the last prophet, not uh, too terribly long after uh, Daniel and and Nehemiah, as they speak these last words, there's going to be a 400-year period of silence where God basically doesn't speak to the children of Israel through a prophet. And interestingly enough, the reason that he begins to kind of turn off his voice is because the people uh, had turned their backs really on the Lord. They had begun to seek their own way. They had begun to not listen to God any longer. And so God says, fine, if you don't want to talk to me, 
I'll turn my voice off and let's see how you do on your own. Now, why am I saying that as we begin this book? Because whenever you read an Old Testament book, you're going to find a couple of things true. There's almost always going to be some history. In other words, there was a literal children of Israel. There was something Israel was doing, and God thereby gives us the history that's within that book. But there's almost always a second thing that we can learn, and that is what does it mean to us today? How does this, how does this truth that was true with Israel apply to us? And while we have not replaced the nation Israel, God still has a plan for them, we can certainly learn lessons from how Israel handled themselves during times of difficulty or times of crisis. And so as we move back to the prophet Hosea, back to the northern kingdom, back to this kingdom that was called loosely Ephraim because it was the largest group, the largest tribe, but known collectively as Israel and in the south, collectively as Judah, we bump into this man, Hosea. And interestingly enough, you would think that he would be a governing official. You would think that he would be a politician, perhaps. You would look at his life and go, why would God use a farmer? Hosea was a farmer, but he was a farmer that loved God. He was undoubtedly, I believe, a native of the northern kingdom. He actually came from there, but he's going to prophesy over both. He was probably from the region north of the Sea of Galilee. That today is the breadbasket of of Israel. It's called the Hula Valley. And so you can go there and you'll see bananas and mangoes and all kinds of crops growing side by side throughout the Hula Valley. And so as Hosea's practicing his farming, he's going to minister during the, the times of, of the kings that would be uh, very familiar to us in the south because they're the same ones that Jeremiah and Isaiah will prophesy under and over. You have Uzziah, you have Jotham, you have Ahaz, whom we just saw his water tunnel, and you have Hezekiah, whose tunnel uh, was brought into Jerusalem to make sure that city had water. So you have these incredibly gifted and, for the most part, other than uh, a few of their uh, compatriots, well-meaning kings. And there in the north, you had a single king, and that was King Jeroboam II. And so the kings of Judah in the south belonged to David's dynasty, the kings in the north uh, followed after the first king, Jeroboam the first, and they just simply refused to repent and turn to God. And so you kind of have like the rebels in the north, and you have those that are trying to do what God wants them to do in the south. And sometimes we look at our own nation, we, we go, you know, there's people who love the Lord, and there's people who don't love the Lord, and they live in the same land. There's people who acknowledge the Lord, and there's people who don't acknowledge the Lord, and they live in the same land. There are people who love the Lord and are doing exactly what God wants them to do. And there are people who don't love the Lord and are doing exactly what God does not want us to do. And they live in the same land. Hence the connection I believe this book has with us today. We live in a land of people where there are God-fearing, God-loving, God-honoring, Christ-honoring, Bible-following people who love the Lord and are trying to do what God wants us to do. And we're surrounded by people who do not love the Lord, and their voices are loud. 
In other words, there's a lot of decision-making that goes on in our lives. Will we follow the Lord? Will, will we actually follow after what God has asked us to do? That was the choice that Hosea had. It's like there are a lot of voices, and many of them are not from the Lord. During the evil reign of King Jeroboam, the nation has been conquered by Assyria. The Jewish people will intermingle and be forced, in essence, to intermarry with the Assyrians, producing a hated race of people that we know as the Samaritans. The land is now going to become polluted instead of following after Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. They're, they're going to start worshiping all kinds of foreign gods. And again, while this is not a direct correlation, it's very similar to the situation we have in our country. We have a largely Christian mooring. We have a Christian beginning. We have a period of time where a vast majority of people in America would say they were Christians. And along comes secular humanism, along comes wealth, along comes prosperity, along comes all kinds of things that have detracted, along comes a sexual revolution, along comes uh, this personal liberty movement that says my personal liberties uh, should be looked after even greater than my worship of God. We're in a very similar situation. It's not exactly the same. But perhaps you have run into these circumstances yourself to where there are people worshiping a false god in your neighborhood. Now, they probably don't have an Ashtaroth pole. They almost assuredly don't have a statue of Molech in their front yard where they offer up their children. But we are offering up our children in the t- to the tune of some 700,000 of them uh, to the god of proclivity, to the god of immorality to the God of abortion. We, we still have an awful lot of people who are worshiping false gods, even though they may not have an idol in their living room. Perhaps their, their idol just simply has the name materialism. Maybe it's a lack of care for people who are less fortunate. We have other gods that we're worshiping in our culture today. And so this book then could be looked at in loosely and in some ways specifically as a book written to us in our time because we face some of the same things. These first three chapters, Jeroboam II is going to be ruling during that time, one of the most wicked kings that Israel ever had. He himself was an idol worshiper. And just as Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says, God's word is true, and every man is a liar, so the words of the prophet Hosea are still true today. And so would you join me, and we'll pray, and we'll pick up here in verse 1, and get these first 11 verses, which comprise the first chapter here in the book of Hosea. Father, thank you. For the words of your prophet, Hosea, pray that we would grow, pray that we would be instructed, pray that we would know uh, what you want us to learn from this amazing short book. Uh, Speak to us, God, through the power of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I will will warn you, uh, if you have children, uh, there's a couple of words in here you may not want to share uh, with your kids. 
And this is a PG-13 start, so uh, be forewarned uh, that you can't hide what's going on in this particular story. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. So kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. And in the days of Jeroboam, that would be Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, or the northern kingdom, as we've already said. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, now here's where it gets kind of crazy. Something you wouldn't expect the Lord to ever say to anyone. It says to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry. In other words, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute by departing from the Lord. And so we went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, notice what he says. I'm going to bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. Now, when is he writing? He's writing during the time of the Assyrian invasion. And in fact, this will come to pass. The Assyrians will take over the whole northern kingdom. They will enslave the Jewish people. They'll murder most of the men. They'll make children with the, with the women who will become the Assyrians. It's going to be a dark day for the children of Israel, for the nation that God founded when he said, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a father of multitudes. I'm going to make your children as numerous as the sands of the sea. When that covenant was made with Abraham, that transferred to Isaac, which transferred to Jacob, Jacob, and the 12 tribes, which are now in view here in this particular book. And it should come to pass in that day, circle it, You've been with us in our study uh, through the book of Isaiah. We know that this is referring to the latter days, ultimately, in that day, specifically with the Assyrian invasion. But it will come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. In other words, he's going to allow catastrophe to come on his own people. They're they're not going to survive it. They are going to be taken captive. He, He is going to punish them. One of the terrible things about a life of sin, when we know what God's word says, and he's been gracious to us, is to continue in it. it the, the disaster is what God allows because he loves us. And so in that way, this book is a book of grace. But it's also a book of terror. And God's economy, as he understands, wants us to understand how he feels about sin, he says, look, I, I'm not going to prevent you but I want you to know that all sin has a, has a cost. It has a price, and it can be very high. I love you, but is the way we can look at it. I love you, but I don't want you to do that. I love you, but you can have my justice and judgment, or you can have my grace if you repent. That message is still true. And she conceived again and bore a daughter, and then God said to him, call her 
Lo Ruamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. Now, this thing sounds kind of grim. I can tell you the story gets much, much, much better. For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Again, this is exactly what happens. And as we read the book of Kings, as we read the book of Chronicles, uh, as we understand the history of the Jewish people, uh, God does in fact allow them. Even the prophet Isaiah will give us a very clear picture that as the Assyrians have laid siege to Jerusalem, they've already taken the northern kingdom. And so by the time Isaiah writes and Jeremiah writes, uh, these things will have come to pass just a hundred years or so later. And yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Why? Because in the north, they were worshiping false gods. And in the south, they had a godly king who still was trying his very best to lead the nation in following the Lord. And the people were still largely following the Lord. I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will not save them by bow. In other words, he's saying, look, you're not going to have to defend yourself. You're not going to fight this battle yourself. I, the Lord, will defend you. I, the Lord, will save you. And I want to speak to you tonight a little bit about that as we move forward. This is where we are today. The problems we face are problems that God alone can solve. There's not going to be a political solution to these things that we face. There's going to be a God solution to the things that we face. And to the extent that we cast ourselves upon the mercies of the Lord, we're going to see God's hand. But to the extent that we think our bow, whether it's the bow of our technology or the bow of our intellect or the bow of our monetary system, our economic power, if you will, which is right now crumbling, if we think we can rest and trust in the bow or the horses and the chariots, as Isaiah will say it, if we think we can trust in someone or something beyond the Lord, then the Lord will ultimately always show us the futility of that. He'll see, I don't want you to trust in anything but me. I want you to trust in me. And so he says, look, I will save you. I will do that, but you're not going to save yourself, nor by sword in battle, nor by horses or horsemen. He's saying, look, this is way beyond you. You need to lean on me. And now when she had weaned, lo, ruama, she conceived and bore a son. And then God says, call his name lo, ami. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Now you're probably going, man, this is like super depressing already. And if it were to stop here, it would be really depressing, but it doesn't stop here. Because God's response is that he loves sinners while he still hates sin. He doesn't want us to do what he's told us not to do, but he still loves the person, even someone who's actively engaged in going the wrong direction. It's the beauty of mercy. It's the beauty of grace. And yet the number, verse 10, of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. Remember this promise? Where did it come from? You see, God, exactly as Paul wrote to Timothy, is faithful even though we are faithless. 
It's, not, it's never been about us. It's always been about him. And so what does he say? In the moment that he says, look, you're not my people and I'm not going to be your God, I'm still going to be faithful to my promise. And so what's he saying? He's saying, look, this group of unfaithful people, they're going to they're gonna fade from history. This group of people who don't want anything to do with me, I'm going to allow them to have what they've earned in essence. They don't want me, I want them, but if they don't want me, I'm going to honor their choice. And so he says, look, you can have what you ask for, but I'm still going to be faithful. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass in a place where it was said to them, you are not my people. And there it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And then the children of Judah, the children of Israel, shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And so God is basically giving them a glimpse, a foregleam, of what still lies ahead for the children of Israel. He said, I'm going to let you continue to do what you want to do. I'm not going to force you into loving me. I'm not going to force you into worshiping me. I'm not going to make you not persist in this sin. If that's the direction you've chosen, I want your heart to be inclined towards me. And if it's not, then you get to keep what it is that you're you're after. Now, this is super important for us. Because this book is absolutely a book of love. It absolutely is a book of grace. It's a beautiful illustration of God's grace. But Hosea is going to be a prophet that has a tremendously broken heart. His name is actually a a form of God's salvation. It's very similar to Yeshua. But in his personal life, there's going to be tragedy. There's going to be difficulty. Hosea is, is one of those guys that when you look at it, it's like, man, I can't believe God asked him to do that. It's like, what was the Lord thinking? You see, because the children of Israel had broken the covenant. The children of Israel were not being faithful to the Lord. The children of Israel were doing everything they could to tell God that they didn't want anything to do with them. And this is where I think it becomes important for us to just listen to what's going on in, the, in that period of time and ask ourselves some Pretty simple questions. Am I listening to the Lord or am I listening to the world? Am I doing what God wants me to do or am I doing what the world wants me to do? Am I following after the dictates of my flesh or am I listening to how the Lord, by his spirit, would guide and direct me and guide and direct the church? You see, God's going to be faithful to his promises, but he hasn't promised to save us from the circumstances that we bring into our own lives when we rebel against God. And so it's super important for us, church, to remember that God keeps his promises, and one of his promises is he chastens those whom he loves. And if he doesn't chasten us, he doesn't love us. So when we put ourselves into harm's way, effectively, as the children of Israel did, we can count on God to give us some stuff that we're probably not going to like. It's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 9, this incredible passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is talking about the children of Israel in the last days, 
actually makes reference to this particular book. He's referring to Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10. When they're in Romans 9, verse 26, he says, And he did not make known his riches glory upon the, upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand, to whom he also called, not among the Jews only, but also among the Gentiles. In other words, he said, look, the Jewish people knew the truth. The Jewish people understood who God was. And because they rejected it, the Gentiles ended up with the temple treasures in that sense. It's like the, the Gentile people got the grace of God. They understood who Messiah was because the Jewish people had ramped up to that event of Jesus' coming. They said, no, we don't want that kind of Messiah. We don't want to do what God tells us to do. And so he picks out one of these children and says, look, you're not going to be my people. You're going to be the, the, the child of harlotry. You're, you're, you're going to get what you've earned in essence. Paul's going to go on in Romans chapter 11 and say, one day all Israel is going to be saved. He's going to say their hearts are going to be hard. That hardening started during the time of Hosea. It's like, well, you know, I mean, the Assyrians are not that bad. Worshiping Baal, you know, yeah, he's kind of a, you know, a bull god of prosperity and kind of sexuality. And Ashtaroth, she's nothing but sexuality. And Molech, that's the god of the death of children. But other than that, you know, they're not that bad. And so God is speaking, I think, to the church today. It's like, have we been lulled to sleep? Have we gotten to the place to where, like the northern kingdom, we're looking at the things going on in our world and going, you know, it's not that bad. I mean, why, why, you know, I I don't have an Ashtaroth pole in my living room, but I got a bunch of videos in my library that I probably ought to throw away. I don't worship Molech, but, you know, I'm kind of just not into this marriage thing. Church. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not, says the Lord. And so he's not going to change the rules of our occupation of our promised land, our lives by grace, and thereby shame what he did to the children of Israel allowed to happen in their life by changing the criteria whereby he expects his people to live. It's one of the tragedies of sin. Sin is pleasurable for a season. But the end of it is the road that leads to destruction. It's death. And so as we look at the nation Israel today and that blindness that still exists, just exactly as the Apostle Paul said, in part, not all of Israel is blind, but much is, it's because they wouldn't yield. They wouldn't receive the grace of God. And so for you, have you received the grace of God? Have you turned? Have you relinquished your right to self-govern? Have you given up the thought, the concept of being a constitutional monarchy where you could have a figurehead, his name is Jesus, and still live your life however you please? We're either governed by God or we're not. And I would say we have to be really careful that we don't fall into the trap of being governed by the God of this age 
or maybe our own flesh. Now you might be saying as you look at this, okay, the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's going to be lived out, and it's, you know, that's all going to get taken care of in the very last days. And that's true. But what about the people then? Had they sinned away the grace of God? Could God still love such a people? You see, God's kind of throwing down a bit of a challenge here. It's like, man, as he's listening to the Lord, it's like, eh, well, they pretty much deserve it. I haven't done that, but they have, Lord. You know, sometimes we can get a little bit lacking in discernment when we start saying, well, they're like that. No, I think sometimes each one of us can be like that. We need to be careful because the heart of man is deceitful and it is desperately wicked. And the Bible says, who can actually know it but God? And the moment we begin to think that we're beyond these things or you know, perhaps we've been you know, somehow exalted to some other plane of existence to where sin no longer is an attraction to us, then perhaps we're setting ourselves up for a like type of failure. We are still to this day desperately in need of the hand of the Lord in our lives. And so God speaks to this man and he says something that you're kind of like, what? Hosea's deep in thought and all of a sudden into those thoughts, the Holy One of Israel, the one that he knew was so pure he couldn't look on sin. Not that he couldn't. He chose not to. Be careful about saying what God can't do, but what God doesn't do. He shields himself from that evil before he gazes on it. He must have been thinking, man, I must be mistaken. There's no possible way I heard what I just heard. He heard the voice of God. Some of you may be saying to yourself right now, I'm wondering when our nation is going to hear the voice of God. Well, maybe this is an opportunity for the Lord to speak to our nation, speak to our world. Remind us, you know, we're really not all that. If you think about it, the entire economy of the world, in a general sense, has been shut down by a microscopic virus. The entire economy, whole nations have had their lives put on hold by a microscopic virus. Now, I grew up in a day and time because I was born in the 1950s, grew up in the 1960s. We had air raid drills still. We had nuclear drills in our, in our elementary schools to where you were told to duck and cover, put your head underneath your desk like that was going to do something if an atomic bomb was dropped in your neighborhood. We were worried about the Cold War. I was alive during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were sure that Russia, the Soviet Union at the time, the USSR was going to launch nuclear weapons. They would land in the United States in a matter of minutes from Cuba. We thought for sure that the biggest threat that we faced was a nuclear Armageddon. That one day we'd wake up with a mushroom cloud over San Diego and we, we lived 
uh, 35 miles or so to the east and, you know, surely the fallout would get us. Brothers and sisters, that didn't happen. And the world is a much more dangerous place militarily today than it was during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. We have nuclear submarines all over the globe, ballistic missile submarines. We have land-based intercontinental. We could still be wiped out by nuclear war. But could God have gotten our attention this way? Maybe the church is being told, look, if I want to get your attention, I don't need a nuclear bomb. I don't need bows. I don't need horses. I don't need chariots. I can use a virus to cast down every single vain thing that you trust in. You've been trusting in your prosperity. I can take that away in a heartbeat. I've gotten calls from people who say, I lost a third of my wealth in the last two months. It's probably true. Could it be that God is saying, you guys are on a path and it's not a good one. Maybe you should turn around. Maybe God's speaking. And I guess the question is, are we listening? I know what happened in Hosea's life. Because there had to be kind of an aha moment for him. And I think it went something like this. You want me to do what? I mean, I'm a holy guy. I'm someone who loves the Lord. He, he's, you know, mulling over things in his mind. He's thinking through the meditations of his heart. He's listening to the Lord. He's hearing all these things. And I want you to go marry a wife of whoredoms, as the King James Version uses that word. I don't particularly care for it, but it does kind of present a little bit stronger picture. It's like, I want you to marry someone who's a prostitute. And to put it into perspective for that day and time, that could have been someone who's a a temple prostitute, a temple priestess. Someone who is engaged in institutionalized prostitution from religion. Now, you're saying, wow, we don't have any of that. Well, really? Because for some people, their religion is prostitution. It is sexual proclivity and, and promiscuity. For some people, their whole life is nothing but that. Even if they hold a job at some tech company. You see, we're, we're quick to dismiss, well, I can't, you know, we don't have that anymore. Now, we, we don't have a temple somewhere with an Ashtaroth pole or a statue of Molech. But we have a society that is so strongly bent that direction that sometimes I'm wondering if we actually do have it and we just don't know it. You see, Hosea was going, that can't be you, Lord. And perhaps in a modern vernacular, this woman was just simply someone who was liberated. Humanism had crept into her life. She began to think, as many say today, my body's my own. I can do whatever I want with it, really. It's not what the Bible says. 
The Bible says if you're a Christian, your Bible was bought and your Bible says that your body was bought and paid for with the blood of Christ. Not just your body, but your mind and your spirit. That God actually paid the price to redeem you and your life belongs to him. And yet we sometimes support thinking that doesn't line up with the purchase price. Because the purchase price was the son of God, the sinless lamb of God. We're going, yeah, well, but. You, you see, she had a lifestyle that was in disagreement with the holiness of God. I bumped into a lot of Christians that have a lifestyle that's in disagreement with the holiness of God. And this book speaks to that situation. It's a dangerous place to be. In a more coarse way, maybe she was just a common prostitute from the streets. And I know this is a female example that's given here. You could just as well use a man in today's society. Someone whose life is bent in a direction that's clearly contrary to the word of God. You may think it's okay. You may say it's an alternate lifestyle. You may say that it's something you're able to do because love is love. That's not what the Bible says. You see, it's easy to look at our world and say, well, the world is saying it pretty loud and pretty clear. Why don't we go that direction? That's exactly why Hosea is saying, you want me to do what? The church and believers should be saying, you want me to do what? We should not be easily coerced into going a direction that is contrary to God's word. It should always stimulate us to think, "You did I hear you correctly, Lord? Now, in this case, God spoke to him, and we're going to see how God redeems this. And it was a little different situation, to be sure, and so we need to be careful not to make a direct equivocation here, which I'm not trying to do. But I am saying that when you look at this passage, through the totality of what we know from the, the whole of Scripture, And you have to say, you know, maybe we're going the wrong direction today. Why would a guy that loves the Lord be asked to do such a thing? Because God had a message. And that message was for the whole of the children of Israel. We're going to see, and basically these children are named in such a way that these children provide a backdrop for us. Jezreel. His name means may God scatter. Why is that important? Because the nation Israel thought because of the covenant that God had made, because of the grace with which that covenant came to Abraham. You talk about grace. We talk about it in a modern context of the completed gospel, but... Abraham received the grace of God and the mercy of God. He was completely undeserving of what God gave him. He himself had deceived, he himself had lied, and yet God was gracious. And so the history of the children of Israel goes back to a man that received this promise that 
God would make them more numerous than the sands of the sea. And it was to that man that God poured out grace. And so this first child from this wife that is of questionable character says, look, the nation's going to be defeated. It's going to rely on itself. You're going to rely on Ahab. You're going to see that in the story of Naboth, the Jezreelite who owns the vineyard as we would move through the first book of Kings. You're going to sell it to Ahab. Ultimately, Ahab is going to become the king. Through Ahab is going to come Jezebel. Through Jezebel, the torment of, Isaiah, or, or of Elijah the prophet. You see, God's just going to take and scatter the whole mess. He said, no, nope, you're going to keep going that direction. Not having it. The daughter, Lo Ruama, there's this poor girl who, whose name means not beloved. It's like, look, you can keep doing what you want. But the children born in that environment end up not loved. The children who become the children of a people who turns their back on the Lord end up outside of the goodness of the Lord. You might have to ask yourself the question, why has church attendance throughout the United States descended over the last 30 years? Why are there few people who name, fewer people who name the name of Christ than there were 30 years ago? Why is that? Could it be that the nation has turned the wrong direction? God had shown mercy time and time again. When you look at the kings of Israel, Jeroboam the first had provoked God. He, he brings these two golden calves and says, let's worship. We'll kind of do two things here. Well, we'll kind of have a little bit of Judaism over here and we'll worship golden calves over here. Ahab goes the other way and he, he just says, man, we're all in. We're going to follow Baal and Ashtaroth and, and Molech. We'll just go all in on the whole, you know, we'll worship whoever we want, however we want. After him, the king that's named here, Jehu, you can go see a picture of King Jehu chained. It's actually in a relief from the Assyrian city of Nineveh modern-day Mosul. That's on display in the British National Museum. And the inscription under it is Jehu chained. Yeah, well, what did Jehu do? Well, he went back to the calf worship. He went away from God. And Jeroboam was basically a military ruler. He says, look, we're so tough, we can, you know, we can get through this ourselves. And I just look at this passage like, man, did that... The people of Israel need mercy at that point in time. We need mercy. We need God to step into our time and show mercy on us. The final child here, the final son, Loami. Like, can you imagine naming your child, dude, you're not mine. You're not my kid. And consequently, if that's true, then you would also be saying, and God's not your God either. But through all of this, God's going to be faithful. 
And though it has this beginning, and I don't want you to lose heart here because this turns into an incredible story of God's love. There's a little glimmer of hope right here at the end of this chapter. And it's a window of grace. God loves his kids. And even though he had instructed Hosea to go marry someone that no one, if you're a parent, uh, you're not going to encourage your kids to go marry someone that has a problem that way. Be the last thing that you would do. So God must have known what he was doing. Interestingly enough, we find absolutely no reason to believe that Gomer ever repented of her sin. She kind of kept going that direction. But Hosea was faithful. And Hosea was delivered. And Hosea was given a vision of a good future and a hope, exactly as Jeremiah would prophesy. You might be asking yourself, well, why did you just divorce her? Why, you know, why didn't the neighbors and friends, they all must have known what was going on, you know, of course. You could ask yourself the same question about us, about me. What does God see in us? What does God see in me? What does God see in the human race? Well, what God sees in us is he loves us. And he's forever kind and forever merciful. And in spite of all of our wranglings and useless things that we do, God still is a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of tenderness and gentleness. That's why his love, Paul said, writing to the church at Corinth in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, it suffers long and it's kind. That's who God is. But don't take that suffering long and being kind for any type of approval. He's not approving of the sin. He's saying, look, I still love you even though you're going the wrong direction. And so maybe for some of you tonight, you just simply need a little course correction. Kind of what the writer of Hebrews gets to there in chapter two. Look, be, be aware that you might be, able, you might be drifting. Don't drift. Get back on course. Go away from the things of the world and towards the things of the Lord. And make sure that you know who God is. Hosea knew who God was. And he was faithful to a faithful God. And so as we pick up this story next time in chapter 2, we're going to see God's amazing grace. Pray that you're sustained this week. We'll see you Thursday night right here online. Hopefully we're going to be able to do this in person really soon. So pray to that end. Pray for our governor. Get him to make that godly decision. God can impress upon the hearts of kings what he wants them to do. So he can surely turn the head of governor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible story. And we pray, Lord, that it would be an example to us of how we ought to live our lives in such a way as to be well-pleasing to you. Uh, We're grateful, God, for what you're doing and pray that you would move now to point us the right direction. Find those areas in our lives where maybe we've wandered a little bit, gone someplace we shouldn't go, done something we shouldn't do. Thank you for your goodness to us that you haven't forsaken us, Lord. You haven't said we're not yours. You've just simply asked us to, to turn and return to you. We're grateful for that opportunity. 
see, let help us to seize it, Lord. Thank you for your grace, for your love, for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.